the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Hurley. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience. Featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 20, Episode 14. Cooperation, a political, economic, and social theory. Talking with author, Professor Bernard E. Harcourt. Our guest today is Bernard Harcourt, the Isidore and Seville Sulzbacher Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. He's also a professor of political science. His scholarship focuses on punishment practices, political economy, critical theory, and political protest. In his latest book, Cooperation, he identifies the most promising forms of cooperative initiatives and then distills them into an integrated framework, cooperism. This is a political theory grounded in the recognition of our interdependence. It's an economic theory that can ensure equitable distribution of wealth. A new world of cooperation democracy is within our grasp. He joins us from his office in New York. Hello, Bernard, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Bernard, tell us about your book. You open with a discussion of climate change and pandemics, two very important global issues that have demonstrated our need and ability to cooperate globally. Thanks so much for asking and for presenting the question that way. You know, the book is grounded in or launches off of a peculiar condition that we find ourselves in today, which is our mutual interdependence, our mutual interdependence as humans. With global climate change and with the other threats to our existence, with the rise of pandemics, we're in a unique situation today that's that's really different than where we were in the 19th century or even in the 20th century. And it's, it is that notion of interdependence. In other words, if we don't work together to deal with the crises that we face now, particularly the global climate crisis, there's going to be no way out. And so we are in a time politically where we need to work together. And yet, right, at, the, at a political level today, we're at a time of divisiveness, of polarization, of practically of civil war in this country and other countries as well. And the question is, how can we act in the interdependent way when what we are facing is such polarization and opposition? And it was trying to think through those dilemmas that I, I came to ideas of cooperation, which I formulated into a, a theory of cooperism, um, ideas of cooperation that have existed for a long time, but that more than ever we need to turn to and amplify, because it's through forms of us cooperating with each other that we're going to, only through those forms that we're going to be able to address our interdependence and issues and crises that we face. Now, I'm, I'm proposing uh, cooperism as a multidimensional theory, a political theory, an economic theory, and a social theory. Mm -hmm. And it's important that there be those three dimensions. It, it's not enough simply to have a, 
a social theory or a social movement. It's not enough to have a political movement. I think you need all three. You need an economic system Mm -hmm. for all of them to stick together and to do the kind of work that we need an economic system to do. And so, so I'm turning to methods that we, that have existed for a while that are kind of all around us really Mm -hmm. in, in plain sight, but they're hidden and we don't usually take advantage of them. We don't usually fully understand them. And it's these notions of cooperation, notions of collective, of cooperatives, of mutuals, of mutualism, of of credit unions. So uh, across the board, there are different forms of social organization that depend on cooperation and that function very well, that are often hidden and we don't see them uh, by contrast to the, you know, multinational corporation or the uh, publicly traded corporation. And these are cooperatives, basically. It could be something like, and some of them are very common, so State Farm and other uh, insurance mutuals, which the insurance industry is just full of mutuals. I mean, that historically, they've been very important. Uh, what, what's different with a mutual? Well, it's that the policyholders are the members, are the ones who actually are the effectively the shareholders, right? Or credit unions. Their credit unions have existed for a long time now. And they are credit unions are essentially banks that are run by the depositors, by the mm-hmm. people who use the bank. Worker cooperatives or consumer cooperatives. Uh, Land of Lakes is a producer cooperative. REI is a consumer cooperative. There are around us all these different forms of organization of political and economic and social organization that we could turn to right to try to address the broader problems that we're facing today so in this book i excavate in a way the 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 political theory behind these forms behind these cooperative forms i also look at the economic theory the I, i i study the financial structure of the cooperative organizations Uh, And I also turn to some of the social implications to propose a coherent theory of cooperativism, a cooperism is what I the term that I use uh, that could displace the different forms of of excessive competition and crude competition and ruthless uh, exploitation that have gotten us to the point of to the brink of disaster. Mm-hmm. Again, the notion of our interdependence here is very important, and the solution, in a way, builds on that interdependence. It's a, it's a solution that has interdependence at the heart of it. Now, cooperatives have existed for a long time, mm-hmm. and they've also been theorized, and there there are principles of cooperatives that have been established since the 19th century, really. There have been international consortia uh, of cooperatives because you can think back to the 19th century to famous cooperatives like the Rochdale uh, Cooperative and started in 1844, others. And people have figured out what are the important principles behind uh, cooperatives. And one of them is democratic self-determination, for instance. Mm-hmm. So people who basically are part of the cooperative get to run it get to make the decisions as to how any surplus is distributed, right? So there's an element of democratic self-determination that that goes right through cooperatives. Uh, there's an element of kind of 
trying to treat equally all of the different stakeholders in the enterprise and to treat fairly the stakeholders. There are notions of solidarity that are a part of cooperatives. And there's also a respect for the environment in which you work and for issues of sustainability. Now, for people who are familiar with this, you know, th these, these, these should be terms that are, are secondhand almost. Uh, people speak today about solidarity economies that are growing out of cooperative efforts uh, that have all of these components. But when you think about them, they're really important, like democratic self-government. That's something that we think about all the time in the political sphere, but, we, but rarely do we think about it in the economic sphere or in terms of our own work environment, where we're working, how we relate to our co-workers. Uh, the work environment today remains very hierarchical and somewhat aristocratic in a sense with the managers uh, wielding a lot of power mm -hmm. and deciding about how benefits and surpluses are distributed. Uh, when in fact, in a, in a cooperative, that's something that the members of the cooperative decide. And the members of the cooperative can decide how surpluses and benefits are distributed and also the kinds of any, if there are going to be any inequalities, say in salaries, what they should be capped at. Now, it, it produces, because of the self-government and the, the democratic nature of it and questions of sustainability, uh, these devices, these forms of organization produce very different results. And it's those results that are so particularly interesting and appealing. Oh, we've seen around the world experiments with cooperative uh, enterprises. For instance, um, in Spain, there's a famous cooperative named Mondragon. It's mm -hmm. one of the cooperatives that people often speak of when they speak about cooperatives because it's such a big enterprise. It's the seventh largest industrial society in um, in Spain, mm -hmm. and they fabricate real equipment. I mean, this is a they're they're making they're making refrigerators and, mm -hmm. and, and equipment. So it's it's uh, you know it's a, it's a traditional industry manufacturing industry it's got about 74,000 people mm. who are members of uh, the different cooperatives that form those different cooperatives form this larger entity called Mondragon so and it's it's very successful and whatnot but one of the things that's most interesting for instance is that the differential between the person who's paid the least and the person who's paid the most is one to four about one to 4.5 mm. right and so what that shows is that the wealth of the enterprise is being distributed in a very equal way among all of the different member participants. Mm -hmm. Now that one to four, one to five is radically different than what we have in a lot of enterprises uh, in the United States, which can easily go to one to 300 or mm -hmm. even, you know, one to a thousand in terms of the differentials. What this suggests is that when members kind of member workers or member consumers are the ones who are deciding how wealth is distributed, mm -hmm. they tend to do it in a much more even and fair way. The result of all this is kind of working with others in a cooperative environment, thinking about others, thinking about our interdependence, thinking about our relationship to the environment, thinking about the sustainability of the enterprise. And all of that, those those are basically the what we need to be thinking in the face of our contemporary crises.
So in the book, I, I talk about the, the political theory behind cooperation and cooperism, about the economic theory and the social theory. To, to start with briefly mm-hmm. uh, on the political theory, it's important to understand that there have been different approaches and different arguments for cooperatives and cooperation over the past few centuries. And I would argue that many of them are somewhat outdated. So, for instance, there was a whole strand of evolutionary thought, basically Darwinistic evolutionary thought, which tried to argue that uh, humans function through cooperation more than they function through competition. This was studies of animals as well, the way you know animals might fly together in flocks or or swim together in pods and whatnot. The, the, the evolutionarily, there are ways in which cooperation actually trumps ruthless competition. I would say that that's always that's a very interesting work, and it was particularly interesting in the 19th century, turn of the 20th century. But that it's hard to at this point tranche all of these complicated scientific evolutionary theories, and and that we we don't have to anymore in a way because of our interdependence, because this is the different time that we are living in. Similarly, there were many 19th century theories about utopian socialism, about, well, this was, these were thinkers like Charles Fourier or Robert Owen, uh, 19th century, and they had some ideas, some people thought they were wild ideas, but they were fascinating, very original ideas about these phalansteries and where they would build a kind of a, 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 a worker's community. Mm-hmm. But again, very 19th century, and it wasn't so much cooperatives as kind of top-down philanthropic uh, interventions, more than actually worker cooperative members deciding on their own fate. It was kind of it was very much coming from industrialists who were very progressive. So a lot of the reasoning that ultimately led to the political theories of cooperation, I would say, are somewhat outdated and can be replaced today by much more simple political thinking. And and that has to do with our interdependence, but it also has to do with the fact that at a political level, the world that we construct is the product of our own uh, deliberate choices. Uh, I think that's something that's very modern, a modern way of thinking. But the forms of uh, inequality that we have in society today are pretty much chosen based on, you know, tax policies, redistribution policies, uh, health policies, etc. And so at a political level, I try to argue for an updating, a modernization of our thinking about cooperation and a focus on deliberate decision making, deliberate uh, construction of these forms of uh, working together. Uh, at the second dimension, at the economic level, what I try to propose is that um, cooperatives are really a an alternative to both what we the both models that have dominated the 20th century, mm-hmm. both capitalism and communism. And and we we tend to think of the world often as if uh, well, particularly with the fall of the Berlin Wall, we tend to think well, capitalism triumphed over communism at an economic level and it's clear that you know what we need is competition the forms of uh, of economic organization didn't didn't succeed um, what i try to argue is actually those are myths the capitalism versus communism 
way of thinking about the world is is an illusion and that actually those two systems are not that different and they both depend on a large state upholding the economic framework and a very kind of top-down economic approach. And I know some of this is counterintuitive, but I think when you look at the kind of bailouts that the American government engages in, and recently the bailouts, for instance, of the middle-level banks Mm -hmm. that have been suffering as a result of the uh, increased uh, interest rates, Silicon Valley Bank, for instance. When you look at the bailouts, it's pretty clear that actually the American system, the American free market system, depends on the American government being there as a lender of last resort, mm-hmm. as a financial security, right? And so you you end up really having a top-down system where the American government is effectively stepping in at critical junctures to kind of determine the way that uh, economic exchange happens. Now, on the at the other end, communism, it never was a system of common property. It never worked as a system of common property. It always ends up being a political party that is effectively in charge of how distribution happens. Mm-hmm. So what I suggest is that cooperism actually is an alternative to both in the way that what it does is it allows the people who are working in the enterprise or depositing money or insuring themselves uh, in mutual insurance companies that it's it's actually the bottom up it's it's much more bottom up it's though it's the people who are engaged in the enterprise working in the enterprise members of the enterprise who are making the decisions and making the economic system function uh, so at an economic level, and that's the second dimension, what I propose is, is an economic system that would have in it the kind of democratic self-government decision-making uh, that we aspire to uh, in the political level, but that would be very doable. And what I try to argue and what I try to demonstrate is that in terms of the corporate finance, the cooperatism, cooperism, it's, it's very simple. Um, the corporate finance. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, you're just replacing equity shareholders by uh, membership fees, and we can talk about that. We can talk about that later. But it's 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 very simple. It's very doable. And just in just as the lawyers that we train here at Columbia Law School go out and create, you know, uh, shareholder interests and corporate structures. It's just as easy to create a cooperative structure and and member interests. So that's the second level. And at the third level, I try to develop this notion of a a social theory of cooperation. Mm -hmm. Because I think that it's pretty clear that in this country, with mass incarceration today and also the racialized mass incarceration that we have today, which is really unconscionable. I mean, the the number of persons who are uh, incarcerated today being more than two million people uh, behind bars. Uh, that this this whole system it depends on a on a social theory whereby we basically leave people alone and we don't support them until they go off the path, mm-hmm. and then we crack down on them and spend tons of money on locking them up. 
Mm-hmm. And, and we're willing to spend 30, 40, even more, $1,000 to lock people up a year when we would never have spent that money on them to help them with their education, to help them with their housing, to help them get back on their feet when they were having a difficult time. What I suggest is through a theory of cooperation, we could actually displace the punitive paradigm that exists in this country, everything based on punishment and prisons and policing, that we could displace that paradigm with a cooperation paradigm, where instead of investing after the person has done harm, right, we invest, we cooperate, we work together, we support, we try to put in place support mechanisms that would make it that the person doesn't uh, go down that path and cause any harm. Uh, so at, at that end, it's a it's a social theory really of cooperation intended to replace or displace the notion of uh, of solving everything through punishment. Mm-hmm. So those are the three dimensions, and and again, I think it's really important to, to have all three. I don't think it's possible to engage in social movement to transform society only at a social level mm-hmm. without also transforming the way in which we engage in economic exchange. And and I don't and, and, and similarly without engaging the political relations that we have. Uh, the idea here is to create cooperative mechanisms in all aspects of our lives, uh, social, political, and economic, to use the same kind of democratic deliberative mechanisms uh, throughout. In the final chapter, I speak about uh, this idea of cooperation democracy, which is a term I'm somewhat inventing based in part on W.E.B. Du Bois's notion of abolition democracy. Mm And trying to emphasize both the democratic aspect here, which is so important to to our our way of being uh, in this country, but expanding that democratic element to all aspects of our lives so that what we would end up with is a notion of democracy that places cooperation at its heart, Mm -hmm. um, which means that it's not any notion of democracy. It's not just a notion of majority vote, right, which often is the way we think about democracy. Uh, The outcome of a majority vote is what we should respect. I'd like to think that it's a little bit more complicated what we should be aspiring to from a democratic perspective. And what that should be is a form of cooperation democracy in which the don't, in other words, the the democratic elements and the self-governing elements go across all aspects of society, not just the political vote, but also the economic vote, the vote in the workplace and the vote in social relations. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a lot. It's a lot. There, no, it's uh, but- it's a fascinating theory. And as we discussed before we went on the air, it's already hiding in plain sight, particularly when we get to the the economic piece of it. As you and I discussed, for instance, and I'm, I'm not alone, I'm sure there are millions of Californians, millions of Americans who are touched in many ways by cooperatives. I, for one, have 
my insurance with State Farm, which is a mutual. I bank right. I bank with a credit union here in San Francisco. Not I have uh, regular banks also, but a credit union. And uh, mm-hmm. REI, you, you cited REI. That's our go-to right. store for, for equipment, for sports equipment. So the right. point is there, within the economy, for the most part, we don't even notice that right. we're already dealing with cooperatives. One of the questions that I have about the economic theory of cooperatism for instance, the insurance industry is dominated, I think dominated by mutual societies, by by cooperatives. Why was that model so successful in that one industry and it hasn't been as widespread in other industry? Are there lessons to be learned from today's U.S. insurance industry and its adoption of the mutual model that other U.S. industries could, could emulate? Right. No, that's a great question. Um, because there, you're you're entirely right that there was there has always been a history of cooperation in that particular industry in the insurance industry, and in part the reason for that is that what you're doing is you're spreading risk mm-hmm. uh, when you're in what insurance is basically a, a a way of spreading risk so as to protect people against uh, against bad outcomes. And so, you know, it is a different, it, it does serve a, a slightly different function than when we are, for instance, you know, going to the, you know, bio store to buy vegetables because mm-hmm. you are, the idea is you're, you're pooling risk. And that's what, that's creates a good avenue for cooperation. But on the other hand, it's just, it, it doesn't take that much imagination to see how that model can also apply in other contexts, whether it's worker cooperatives or consumer cooperatives. To tell you the truth, I think that the reason that it operates well in the insurance industry and less well in the worker cooperative industry, or at mm-hmm. least that there are less uh, worker cooperatives than there are, say, uh, mutualist uh, insurance companies, is because of the tax codes and the benefits that go to capital gains, for mm-hmm. instance. You know, the way that we structure our tax code in the context of manufacturing and work by contrast to the insurance context is one that favors a that favors capital that favors capital return return on capital uh, rather than membership fees and distributions on in cooperatives so i think that the way that our tax scheme is structured is one that disadvantages Cooperatives. You could very well imagine, for instance, a few tweaks to the tax system that would make cooperative enterprises uh, much more advantageous. For instance, if um, there were ways to defer taxes on membership fees or on on membership uh, distributions, right? You could think of cooperatives the way you think maybe a little bit more about IRAs or something like the distribution the, mm-hmm. the ta- you only get taxed on distributions at the end when you uh, end your membership or something like that which would which would be ways to then balance the 
balance the scales a little bit so that people might be more favorably inclined to belong to or create a worker cooperative. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are a lot of, you know, so there are a lot of incentives built into the system uh, that favors more traditional forms of uh, equity shareholding. Let's move on to the political realm, because, of course, we have the, the two greatest issues of our time, climate change and, of course, most recently, the COVID pandemic, required, required a, a very high degree of cooperation, both at the local level, the na- state level, the national level, internationally. What lessons can we learn from, particularly from the way that the COVID pandemic was managed and the cooperation that was forced upon us and ditto with climate change uh, of course i think of the the paris accords what lessons can be learned there that our politicians on both sides of the aisle should be acknowledging as as essentially a new model of cooperation i think that you know i think that climate change is the is the perfect example here not only of a place where cooperation is needed desperately, but also we're of a place where it's the only way forward in a way. Mm-hmm. If, if you look at the political situation right now, right, we're kind of deadlocked between, on the one hand, people who essentially deny climate change um, and do not want the government to be engaged in any way in uh, climate uh, measures, Mm -hmm. right? And then another group, I'd like to think a majority, but a slim majority, that feels that we really need the government to, to be the one to solve the problem for us because this is such an international problem. It's an it's a national level problem, and mm-hmm. so what we have to do is have the EPA put very strict requirements on carbon emissions, for instance. Uh, and we saw that with the with the Obama administration. It was then, you know, there there were very strict measures that were passed, uh, important and. I, I favored them. Very important measures that were passed that were put on hold during the Trump administration. Then again, that came back into place under the Biden administration. Uh, and they were measures that the EPA had put in place. And of course, as we saw last summer, the United States Supreme Court struck them down. This mm-hmm. was in the case of West Virginia versus EPA, uh, struck them down under this new theory that the Supreme Court has developed called the, called the major questions doctrine, um, whereby now the Supreme Court is essentially allowed to strike down political measures um, if those measures seem uh, to be too big and not sufficiently directly expressly stated in legislation. Mm-hmm. Right? So they struck down the EPA rules about carbon emissions, basically arguing, look, that's very very expensive uh, measures that you've put into place here. You know, I forget what it was, $400 billion, I think, was was, was the cost uh, or more. And but it's not so clear from congressional legislation that that's what they meant by the Environmental Protection Act. Right now. So you've got a situation really where, on the one hand, 
you've got administrators trying to put in place uh, environmental protection measures so as to fight global climate change. On the other hand, you've got more conservative actors who feel that it's uh, not necessarily required that, that actually maybe it's not humans who are causing climate change, but in any event that these measures are, are not necessary. And we're basically at a gridlock where, where it's hard to imagine at this point being able to pass. It's, it's impossible to imagine passing any legislation right now with a divided Congress mm-hmm. and a house that's majoritarian Republican against climate change measures. So you're not going to get anything out of Congress Right. And then if you get anything out of the EPA or if you get anything out of administrative agencies, it's going to get struck down by the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So so we're basically I mean, in terms of climate change, we're at a we're at a standstill at this point. Tra- tragically, I mean, it's it, it's worrisome that there was, you know, there was some hope with and and there was hope with the uh, inflation reduction act which was essentially an energy bill but that was budget reconciliation Mm -hmm. the only way that biden was able to do that was through a budget reconciliation process that avoided a filibuster in the senate Mm -hmm. but of course budget reconciliation we can't do that anymore Uh, the democratic party can't do that anymore now because it doesn't have the house so there's no way to do budget reconciliation so actually there's there's really no way anymore to do anything major on climate, given the political situation, given the polarized nature, given the divisions in this country. And that's where cooperation is so important, mm-hmm. because we can do it ourselves. And that's the point of cooperation, right? It's kind of bottom up rather than top down. We can do it ourselves in the sense that we uh, when we come together to form a consumer cooperative or a worker cooperatives or a mutual or other mutual aid organizations, we can place our environment, we can place our working environment at the heart of our own choices. We can be the ones who think about uh, the implications uh, on the environment. Because we're making the decisions. It's not it's not a manager mm-hmm. trying to maximize shareholder profit for the shareholders, right? And instead it's it's the people who are going to be affected by the consequences of their work on their lives. Mm-hmm. And so I think from that from that perspective, cooperation gives you uh, a different way, a, a different way out. Um, and actually today I think it's the only way out. I mean, from the traditional corporate shareholder approach, the only way to try and do it is ESG, you know, environmental and social and governance measures, which are very much under attack in Washington, at least by the Republican House right now. But ESG measures are are basically corporations for that are they're trying to maximize their profits, but also be somewhat sensitive to environmental questions you Mm -hmm. can kind of tweak it a little bit and bring in some of that stuff but that's not gonna that's not going to solve the climate problem those are just a little bit kind of small measures that are really actually on their heels uh, because they're being so criticized right now by Mm -hmm. the um, house republicans Um, but i think the alternative the, the alternative really is for 
people to be making their own self-governing decisions about the environment within which they work because they control those decisions. Well, Bernard, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts? I mean, you've laid out a, a theory here which covers social, economic, and political strands of organization. What are your thoughts at this point as regards gaining some traction for this for this theory of cooperatism in today's political climate between what you describe as the statists and the individualist? Where do you see some some opportunity to between those two opposing camps to right. take a second look at cooperatism? Well I think that I think that we need to kind of take a step back and see all of the forms of cooperation that we actually engage in yes. on a daily basis, mm-hmm. right? And I, I think we ignore those. They tend to be poo-pooed in our society uh, by contrast to the more kind of um, kind of in-your-face, kind of uh, more aggressive, competitive uh, forms of uh, social existence, but I, I think they are—they are there. We all are somehow involved in forms of cooperation. I think mm-hmm. we need to take a step back and see how productive those are, actually. Right? Um, whether we're involved with a with a nonprofit organization or engaged in mutual help, and or or look at our look at the way we work in our families, in our own homes. Um, where there is much more kind of democratic decision making going on, and I think when we see how much there is of cooperation, I, I think it's at that point that we'll be able to start building on those forms, connecting them, putting them together, noticing that actually I buy most of my food at a, a cooperative, or all of my dairy is Land O'Lakes, and mm-hmm. they're actually a producer cooperative. And how, you know, so I think it's just going to require some reflection. And 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 tragically, with the crises that we face, I, I think that reflection is is going to be really important. But I think it's going to push us towards these forms of cooperation, particularly as we see that we are kind of gridlocked and Mm -hmm. um, deadlocked in the political sphere, in the traditional political and in the electoral sphere. So in a way, this is a this is a kind of like we have to start thinking about how we can do it ourselves, Mm -hmm. because uh, other conventional ways that we've been going about it are simply not going to get us there. And we are in a different state politically than we ever have been in terms of our mutual interdependence. Mm -hmm. And Bernard, where can our listeners buy a copy of your book, Cooperation? Oh, well, I'm, and I, I think there is, I think, I think it was in the window at City Lights in, uh, in San Francisco. Oh, so really? Oh, wonderful. Oh, good, good, good. That's great. <laughs> but also, of course, uh, at other, at other online shops as well. But I think it's, uh, City Lights is your great bookstore, isn't it out there? Oh, absolutely. Still is. It's an, it's a San Francisco Bay Area institution, in fact. Yes, yes. And um, how can our listeners follow you? A website, your Mastodon yeah, account, right, Twitter? Right, So, well, I've, you know, I, I've been on and off Twitter. You know, I lost my blue check, but um, but I still do, I still do uh, 
a tweet on the same account. That's, you know, Bernard Harcourt. And uh, I've got a Mastodon Bernard Harcourt as well. I think the easiest thing to do is to come find me on the Columbia University or Columbia Law School website, and which is easy to do when you Google Harcourt on Columbia. And then um, what I do is next and, and this coming year, uh, I'll be running a public seminar called Cooperation 1313, mm-hmm. where we'll have kind of we'll bring in people, we'll discuss notions of cooperation. It'll be all Zoomed and live streamed and whatnot. So everybody can participate. We put readings up. We have great speakers. Um, it's a great series, the 1313 series. So I would invite anybody to join us on that. And that should be easy to find if you track me down on Columbia University. So Cooperation 1313 is... Uh is a uh, a website that our listeners can it, can look for it, it will be it's not there right now right now you could look for utopia 1313 um which is the seminar we're running this year we've had a series of what we call the 1313 public seminars of 13 ideas for 13 seminars at columbia the 13 slash 13s okay. this year it's utopia 1313 next year it'll be cooperation 1313 so we're going to mount the website it'll, it should be ready in a couple of months so utopia 1313 for this year and cooperation yes. 1313 for 2024 yes indeed perfect indeed. well yep. again bernard thank you for joining us today and sharing your vision of the power of people working together it's a very powerful thank- concept we've been doing it since time immemorial it's hiding in plain sight all around us And thank you for bringing it to our attention in your thoughtful book, Cooperation. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 399, as the San Francisco Experience celebrates its third anniversary. Listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, 19 platforms in total. And join our audience that spans 65 countries by subscribing to the podcast. This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast with host Jim Herlihy, coming to you from San Francisco.